Hello, it's Thursday 6th of April. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bauman and I will discuss the elephant in the airport lounge issue for the region, tourism and the environment. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So today, we've gathered together some of the environmental stories relating to travel and tourism that are making news across Southeast Asia and the broader region. Environment and tourism, it's a topic that the travel industry is struggling to engage with, but one that is gaining ever sharper focus as tourism activity ramps up throughout Asia Pacific. So Hannah, there's only one place to start really, This is in Southeast Asia. This is an issue that's been developing really over the last month or so, and that's the return of the haze. It is, isn't it? So we've got the the transboundary haze, and I think Chiang Mai, on several occasions, I think in the last couple of weeks, has uh, had the dishonourable title, I suppose, um, of uh, the the world's worst uh, polluted spot, simply down to those very, very high levels of PM2.5 in the air. And like you said, Gary, you know, this this is the environment. I mean, governments have been talking about sustainability for ages, but there hasn't actually been much in terms of like environmental issues, I would say, during COVID. I mean, the focus has been on COVID and there have been bits and bobs, but it really seems this year there have been all sorts of incidents and issues that are now coming back up, like you say, especially as tourism um, starts to resurge and this haze that's impacting northern Thailand and Laos it is really doing that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So for listeners around the world who aren't familiar with the term haze, it's something that gets used in Southeast Asia. Most years, it, uh, when, when the dry season hits, so it's dry season right now in mainland Southeast Asia, not so much in Malaysia, Singapore and Indonesia where it's still raining, but in mainland Southeast Asia, it's dry season and that brings with it agricultural burning. And we see this on the big plantations, the big farmlands, the sugarcane fields. Uh, when it comes down to Malaysia and Singapore, it's more into the, the plantations. But what it does is it creates this smoky haze uh, that hangs over cities, across towns. In previous years, I think 2014 is one that's always referred to. It lasted for months and it, it's dangerous. You know, it has health impacts for everybody because it doesn't just sit over cities. It's, it's over huge areas of the region. It gets called haze, which is kind of a bit of a misnomer because it's it's smog. You know, it's dangerous smog. And as you said, Han, you know, the PM, the particulate matter, uh, is very dangerous to human life. It's dangerous to environment. It's dangerous to, to to wildlife. Has this huge impact. But Chiang Mai has been, I guess, over the last month or so, has been the focus of this because there's been a lot of burning in northern Thailand. But of course. As you said, Hannah, there's this term transboundary haze. If you burn over Thailand, it impacts the neighbouring countries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then it becomes this whole region-wide issue. I think the, the issue is then when it becomes a region-wide issue that nobody really wants to take ownership of that, um, do they? I think it's always very easy to blame the neighbours, then perhaps not necessarily look about what is actually happening in your own backyard. So, I mean, for example, right now in Chiang Mai, if we're talking about like tourism impacts, uh, the Chiang Mai Chamber of Commerce did a survey of business owners just prior to Songkran, which is, of course, coming up this weekend. And it showed that whilst in certain areas, bookings rose to about 50 percent occupancy, 
those in polluted areas of the province were just hitting about 20 to 30 percent. Um, so there's really this big impact there. Um, and particularly for, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about those um, international visitors who are coming in um, might not even be aware that this is something to watch out for. Um, you know, domestic visitors, of course, they'll, they'll be reading about it in the headlines. They'll be very well aware of it. But if you're an international visitor, you're coming over from Europe. This kind of thing is going to really take you by surprise, isn't it? Um, that suddenly, you know, you you were sold on this beautiful blue skies image of uh, Chiang Mai and, and suddenly you can't even see Doi Sutep, you know, the, the iconic mountain nearby due to that thick smog. Yeah, absolutely. So if you look at, you know, there are lots of different pollution tracking apps at the moment around the world. These get used all the time. But if you look currently uh, at the the map of Southeast Asia, mainland Southeast Asia, you will see there are hot spots, as you said, Hannah, there across Thailand, across Myanmar, across Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, across Laos, of course. Laos has been hit pretty, pretty bad. You look further south to Malaysia, Singapore and Indonesia, uh, we don't have that same impact because the burning hasn't happened in this region yet. We do still get some of the drift. In the morning, you can smell some of the smoky drift that's come from further north. But that's because it's still raining in our region at the moment. Once that starts to stop in the next month or so, um, the burning will start in earnest in Indonesia and in northern Malaysia. And that's when this region will start to get impacted. And each year that happens, that floats over Singapore, doesn't it? It does. And then it always inevitably ends up the arguments between Singapore, Indonesia and Malaysia, where, you know, yes, a lot of this burning is going on in Indonesia, but it's being perpetuated by allegedly Singaporean and Malaysian companies. Um, so <laughs> you have this very interesting, everybody is interlinked, but everybody is suffering. You know, this could potentially, if we're looking back at Thailand, you know, elections are coming up. Um, the Thai Prime Minister made a statement after a recent cabinet meeting last week, you know, really emphasizing that solving these haze issues needs to be an ASEAN-wide commitment, you know, it needs to be an ASEAN-wide effort. And everybody has to work together to find a solution. Problem is, you know, as we, we keep seeing with ASEAN, it, it is not always to get that consensus, is it? No, it, it, it's not. And, and And the big problem here really is that you know, this, this plantation burning is on, it's on a huge scale. You know, it's not small tenanted farmers that are just burning small patches of land. And you know, these are big agricultural interests. And that's where it becomes difficult because that's where it becomes both a political and an economic issue. And this is where, as, as I guess, the reason we're talking about it, Hannah, is this, it's out of the control of the tourism industry. To, you know, the, the travel and tourism industry can talk about different aspects of sustainability, about community impact, but it, it has, there's nothing it can do about the air pollution that, floats around the region caused by, you know, burning in different parts, overhanging different countries, different coastal environments, different cities. It is a regional problem, but throwing around, you know, it, it's their fault, it's our fault, who's, whose fault is it, isn't really solving this problem. And this has been going on. I mean, this isn't a new issue, is it? This has been happening for years and years and years. One of the reasons we didn't really see it during the pandemic so much because there was a lot, there was less agricultural activity, and there wasn't so much burning, and obviously it was more difficult for for that to happen because of the restrictions uh, on people and movement during the time. But it's back this year, and the fact that it started quite early, the dry season this year, you know, that does actually throw up the the possibility that this could actually go on for weeks and, and perhaps even months. Yeah, exactly, and it, it, I think it just goes to show again just how how subject subject to you know the vicissitudes of. Everything outside, um, really, tourism is, isn't it? It's so reliant on so many external factors that try as a, a com 
country might or a company might to plan for everything, it gets hit. It gets hit and a lot of things are outside of its control, like you say. Yeah, and I think you made a good point there, Han. I mean, April is quite a vibrant month um, in the region for cultural festivals, that kind of thing. You mentioned Songkran, uh, Khmer New Year. We have the Eid festivities coming up quite soon as well. But you also alluded to the fact that next month in Thailand, there is an election. It's a very hotly disputed. It's being fought very, very hard. But if, you know, air pollution becomes an issue and it becomes an issue because of who are the interests behind uh, the causing of this, the burning, where is it happening? You know, what are the political and economic interests behind this? You can see this becoming quite a hot issue over the next month in Thailand. Yeah, exactly. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out and then the, the implications of that down the line as well. But for now, yeah, I think it's just the region got, has got to wait for the rains to come and to to wash away that haze from the air. But like you say, it's the dry season right now. It doesn't seem like that's going to happen um, anytime soon. No, and I guess the, the reference points as well, Hannah, is we, we look at this is happening now. It started in late March. You know, it's really, really been horrible that the smoke clouds across Laos, across Thailand, across some of the other countries, Vietnam, Cambodia, but, you know, that kind of clouds in a way what actually has been quite a positive start to the year in terms of the tourism recovery. And now this issue is sort of taking hold. And it's one of those where you think, well, you listen to what uh, tourism boards are saying. Singapore yesterday, Thailand has been saying this as well. You know, that the year kickstarted quite well. Chinese tourists are coming back, tourists from Northeast Asia as well. But this issue has the potential to actually not just... Uh, impact bookings from within the region, but from the wider region as well. And I think that's where the big concern is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and if we're even just looking beyond um, the air pollution, you know, I was I saw a heat wave alert for Thailand that's in some places it will feel like, so not necessarily reach, but if you're outside, it will feel like almost 50 degrees, <laughs> 47, 48 degrees in, in certain places um, in Thailand. That's incredibly hot. Again, it, it, it comes down to then is this creating the kind of environment that tourists are going to find attractive to want to visit? You know, if it's a one-off, okay, they can bear with it. If this is something that then becomes a yearly phenomenon, you, you're, you're going to severely then limit your seasons where the country can be visited. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, coming up at the end of this month uh, is the five-day golden week from China. And I think most countries in our region were hoping that the May holiday would start to really see a kickstart in, in tourism numbers coming back from China. It's been quite a muted first two or three months since China reopened. But that May holiday, there's a lot of anticipation. But, you know, these stories about smoke clouds and haze and the, the personal safety elements of it, the security and actually breathing in that air pollution, you know, you could potentially see booking cancellations. And I think that's one of the reasons that the media in the region has covered this, to be fair, they have covered it, but the tourism industry isn't talking about it. I mean, I don't really see it getting talked about very much. No, I would say the only place where it is being talked about a bit more is, is Thailand. I mean, the Thai Hotels Association made a brilliant point and they, they said, if Thailand is going to make tourism a national agenda, air pollution and environmental issues must be the top priority. Um, so, you know, they're the ones seeing those those bookings being cancelled right now. Um, they can see it. But yes, you, you are not seeing tourism ministries themselves coming out and saying, yes, we're going to team up with Ministry of Environment and we're going to have some kind of joined up thinking around how to how to resolve this. It's, you know, very much seen as a different department's issue. Yeah, I agree with that. That's an in important point from the Thai Hotels Association. As you remember, we've been talking about this on and off for the last two years, but, but from June, 
Thailand will start levying uh, a tourism fee to actually visit the country. Now, I think it's the fee is about eight or nine US dollars. And we've said this before, Hannah, that most tourists are expected just to, to accept this as, a, as the cost of traveling to Thailand. But if the cost of traveling to Thailand is also at that time that it's covered in smog, people might decide, well, you know, you, it, it's okay you charging us a tourism fee, but you did say this was going to be involved with environmental protection. If you're not insuring that, you know, why should we pay it? Fair point. Yeah. Um, let's let's see. I always have my doubts whether that tourism fee is actually going to be <laughs> implemented. It's been kicked down the road so many times. But yeah, absolutely. So let's move on, Gary. And this is an email you received that uh, irritated you a little bit, didn't it? <laughs> well, this comes back to, I mean, so what we've been talking about there, as we said, Hannah, is, is something that's a little bit out of the control of the tourism industry. They can't control air pollution. You know, that's a governmental issue. But what the airlines are trying to do now is trying to manage the narrative around sustainable aviation, sustainable aviation fuel, and how you actually make flights less polluting. And, you know, it's quite a difficult issue for the airline industry. And they're not like hotels, you know, they're not static building constructs where you can put solar panels on the outside to, to power some of the, of the plane, you know, there's not much you can do to make the airline itself more sustainable. We know that we're quite a long way away from having battery or electric powered aviation, if that will ever happen on, on the scale that's required. So the focus is a little bit on sustainable aviation fuel. But what, what irritated me about this, and I won't name the airline, but what, what actually irritated me was it was a, a survey that was sent around by one of the airlines in the region. And the phrase that it used to capture your attention was, how are you sustainable? Take part in our survey now. So basically what this was, was an airline doesn't really understand what the motivations or the aspirations of its customers are in terms of environmental sustainability or whether that exists at all. But it's loading the message onto the consumer itself, saying, how are you sustainable and how can we help you? Now, I think that's the wrong way around. I think that brands, as you see in the, in the consumer brand environment, they tend to take responsibility for this. And they're the ones that are actually now being driven by consumer sentiment and actually producing innovations or whatever that actually respond to consumer demand, rather than actually asking consumers, what is it that you want? And I actually clicked through on this survey and the interesting thing about it, you, you have to ask, answer several questions. It's a pure data grab, really. There were so much questions about you, who you are, what you do, how often you travel, where you live, how much you earn, your age, and that kind of thing. And you're thinking, you know, it's really hind, hiding behind a sustainable survey simply to grab consumer data. And I thought it was, it seemed to me very sort of 2018. It didn't seem to be, to me, the, the way that brands are really, really, approaching this issue right now. And I guess it's, it shows you that some level, airlines still don't know very much about their customers. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I definitely don't blame them for trying to understand what the motivations are behind customers. You know, I think understanding whether customers are more willing to pay for flights that are powered by SAF or are irritated like I am by the use, the huge, huge use of single-use plastic bottles um, <laughs> during, you know, long-haul flights. Um, but yeah, like, like you say, it does feel very much like they are pushing the onus onto the customer rather than owning it, rather than becoming that sustainability by default kind of option. It's aspiration from an airline that you would hope rather than they're looking for their customers to say, oh, reduce your single use plastic or, oh, I want to use SAF. And then they do that. Right? You, you, you want it to be driven by them, really. 
Yeah, I think that's true. And I think some of the other airlines I've been noticing in the region, you know, there's a lot of talk about sustainable aviation fuel now. And a lot of uh, the bigger airlines are actually trying to control the narrative now and saying, you know, we're, we're doing X, Y, Z. We're partnering with this institute. We're partnering with this government to increase the volumes of SAF, you know, trying to drive the narrative a little bit that, you know, we are in control of this and we're doing the, mo- the most that we can. But at the same time, you still have to understand, as you said, Hannah, which is a good point, whether consumers are going to be willing to pay the extra costs because there will be extra costs and then how that's actually going to pay out. And, you know, there is this big issue in, in, in every industry at the moment, you know, this, this huge gap between say and do. You read a lot of customer sentiment surveys saying consumers want to do this, that and the other to, to be more sustainable. They want brands to do this. They want companies and governments to do X, Y and Z as well. But when push comes to shove, and when you're taking that trip, you know, how sustainable can you actually be? And it, it's something that's going to evolve over time because it's not automatically just going to happen in the next six months. In, in that sense, consumers will take their own responsibility. They will also be looking to governments and to the, the companies that supply their travel services to take a lead as well. Yeah, absolutely. So should we move on to uh, another airline and sustainability targets? And I thought that this was quite an interesting one. So this was an interview with the chief sustainability officer from Capital A. So Capital A is, of course, the parent group um, for Air Asia. And they were talking about how regional awareness of environmental sustainability is still very low. She made an interesting comment saying, a lot of things that we want to do and what we need to do for environmental sustainability cannot only be done by Air Asia. It has to be done with regulators, with industries and with passengers as well, which, yes, I completely agree with. It cannot only be done by Air Asia. But some of these aims, I mean, they had four main strategies. They were saying that they're going to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050, which is the the target that, I mean, it's the target for IATA Airlines, essentially, is, is to hit this. Um, net zero carbon emissions by 2050. But they were talking along the lines of upgrading their whole fleet from Airbus A320s to A321neos by 2035. They said that this would increase capacity per flight, resulting in cost savings and a 20% reduction in emissions. I mean, just reading that statement, (laughs) to me, it seems a little bit like they want to just squeeze more people onto a plane. And through doing that, they can say that they're saving the environment whether that is really about saving the environment or is it about the bottom line is is, is hard to say uh, you can you can read what you want into that talking about about other fuel saving systems that they're implementing the interesting thing that i noticed really when we were talking about saf or they were calling it aviation biofuel they were only talking about replacing fossil fuels in an increasing ratio they were saying by 2050 and so, gosh, this this is a little bit depressing. I think thinking that airlines, you know, in 2050, so we're talking 20, 27 years time, are still only going to be increasing the ratio of SAF fuels. I mean, it seems like we really have a very, very long way to go, don't we? Yeah, because 20, 2050 seems a long way away, doesn't it? There was also mm. talk as well. That I think this is what really raises alarm bells. There was talk of offsetting emissions through activities such as tree planting. And once you start to see that, you know, that just raises every single alarm bell because that shows that there's no intention to actually make significant emissions cuts. It's just trying to offset it by planting more trees, you know, which if the planet continues to heat up, will we'll, we'll burn faster. So, you know, that doesn't seem to be a huge strategic move forward. I also thought that the thing that you said at the beginning there was, was a little bit of a kind of umbrella statement that 
regional awareness of environmental sustainability is still very low. I don't agree with that. I think awareness is there. I think people are aware of what's happening. You, you can see it around you every single day. Where the awareness isn't particularly strong, I think, is, is how, we, how we cope with this. It's a very complex issue of moving towards a more environmentally sustainable daily living environment, travel environment, consumer environment. I think that's where people are looking to brands and to governments and to everybody else to, to take a lead on this. And I think over, overarching this by saying that awareness generally is quite low, I think actually misplaces the reality. People are looking for a lead. They're looking at how we can actually find solutions. Everybody knows that it's complicated. It's a complex situation. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. It, it's almost making excuses. It's not, and you're absolutely right. Massive, massive alarm bells when you're talking about offsetting fire planting trees, which is, you know, something at the, you know, me sat at the Adventure Travel Trade Association with that hat on. Um, we we talk a lot around environmental sustainability and it's, it's about carbon removals. It's about smart ways to do this. It's not through planting trees anymore. I think that's a very, very little part of how you can achieve net zero, for sure. So next one is one of your picks, um, Gary, and it's around Chinese tourists and environmental sustainability. Yeah, so this results from a a survey report produced recently by McKinsey with Accor and with Trip.com, the the giant Chinese OTA. And I thought this was quite interesting because it's a global survey. And, you know, as with surveys about consumer sentiment around sustainability and environmental protection. You know, you have to take some of it with a pinch of salt because it is simply a snapshot of any one time, any one place. But a couple of things that came out of this that I thought were quite interesting was Chinese travelers' attitudes, basically about what I was just saying. Where is the cost? Who takes the responsibility for actually helping to improve sustainability, particularly in aviation, but in travel generally? And there are a couple of things that that came out of this survey that were thought quite interesting. So Chinese travelers were asked, basically, is it a shared responsibility for tourism to be more sustainable? You know, who actually has to be responsible? And the answer was that 38% of respondents said governments, 37% of respondents said airlines, but 25% of respondents said customers. So you're seeing, you know, almost an equal spread, a relatively equal spread there that everybody has to work together on this complex situation. I think of all the findings that came out of that report, that was the one that was the most interesting to me because, you know, there is no simple solution. The airline's not going to solve this. A government isn't going to solve this. Travelers themselves can't solve this. And so, you know, there is going to be more collaboration needed. And, you know, going back to the original point about airlines surveying their customers, we've got to move past that because we've got to get the data flows much more sophisticated than that to be able to, to, to start moving forward. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I think what's what's good about that survey also is that it does show that, you know, Chinese consumers are concerned around environmental sustainability. And I, I know this is something that you've mentioned, Gary, on the pod before, and we've, we've talked about China. But I, I think that there is still this, this preconception globally that Chinese travelers don't really care about the environment, and they are on their big buses. And that's all there is to it. But I, I think that this, this shows that there is a lot more of a nuanced side to that, and that it is important. Yeah, I think I think it comes down to the fact that, you know, you look at um, outbound tourism from, from any country in the world, and it's going to be the younger people that have the more nuanced and the more, uh, I would say, concerned approaches and, and more ethically minded approaches to how travel is going to impact their lives and the lives of the future generations. Younger people seem to have a better grasp of this. I think it does come back to, to what we said before, you know, the say and do gap. Yes, you can be concerned about it. Yes, you can want to 
to make a contribution. But, you know, it, it is complex. And how, how do we actually now find a way for, for travelers of all kinds, particularly younger people, to actually take control and, and make contributions? It's, there's no easy answer. I, I'm not saying that there is. But I think there, this recognition that, you know, the costs and the responsibilities have to be shared, you know, at least that is a way forward. Yeah, absolutely. So moving back to the region then and to Vietnam. And this was one of my picks and we've been talking about haze and we move on to dust. So this is around the Long Tan Airport construction site, which is, of course, near Ho Chi Minh City. This is meant to be the very, very big airport that they're building there because Ho Chi Minh City Airport um, has, you know, reached its capacity. But the VN Express was reporting that neighborhoods surrounding that site were facing very challenging conditions with dust, which has been really increasing over the past couple of months. And, you know, they had some interesting interviews with residents saying, yes, of course, I really support this. You know, we need this economically, but we also need to be taken care of too. You know, we as the people who are being impacted this on a day in, day out basis. And they had lots of pictures of market sellers who are essentially just having to coat their entire food store with plastic all over it so the food that they're serving is still servable and not full of dust and it makes you realize that for all of these infrastructure projects that we've been talking about and there are a huge number across the region there is always that price to be paid also that environmental price for the for the residents nearby as, as well as the wildlife yeah absolutely nothing to add to that that that's absolutely true and as you said that you know there are and an increasing number of infrastructure projects we'll see over the next 10 to 25 years, I guess, there's, there's going to be a huge build out of transport infrastructure across our region. And, you know, there will be environmental costs from that. We'll move next to another of your picks, Hannah. This is a this is a really serious one. And this is a really dispiriting and, and, and upsetting case. And this is about the oil spill in the Philippines. Yeah, exactly. So this was an, an oil spill that I think took place in early March. It was from an oil tanker that sank off the waters of Naujan town in Oriental Mindoro. But there's a lot of controversy anyhow surrounding this oil tanker and claims that it wasn't registered to do that. But the fact of the matter is that now it's impacting tourism in Oriental Mindoro. Uh, the Department of Tourism there is reporting around a thousand tourism workers across 63 tourism sites have been impacted by that oil spill. Um, and they're looking how they can kind of reskill these workers because I guess they know that tourism is not going to be going back there anytime soon. And it's not only that region that's being impacted, you know, other regions as well. Puerto Galera, for example, was having a lot of cancellations because tourists mistakenly thought that the oil spill had reached that place too. So there's a lot of worries, I suppose, from tourists around this. And yeah, it's just another oil spill that's going to impact, again, the environment by extension of that, the the tourism that depends on that environment. Yeah, absolutely true. The, the TV pictures of that are very distressing. It's, uh, you know, there's a lot of work to try and clean up some of the coastal areas. But, you know, when, when oil spills of that magnitude start hit nature, it takes a long time for any solution to, to, to take effect. I um, mean, it's affecting wildlife, it's affecting coastal regions, it's, it's affecting people. Really, really tragic story. Which brings us to Bintan Island, Hannah. Now, this, isn't, this is an interesting story you picked up. I hadn't seen this one. This isn't about an oil spill. This is about oil waste. Tell us a bit more. Yeah, exactly. So um, one of the, the beaches that near Telepakau village in Bintan Regency is seeing black oil waste, which apparently has been carried over on the open sea. And there, and I mean, 
the suspicions are that it got there because some foreign ships crossing that have you know been dumping the oil into the ocean and again it's just another one of those where the environment there where the tourism workers there are just subject to to this external factor you know it's nothing that they can really control they probably definitely can't track down that the perpetrators for that but it seems to be this is something that is starting to happen more and more and of course then it's it's a worry for the people living there for the environment for tourism workers about that that impact and on the reputation of the destination for one um and you know if it gets that name as being a village or a place where you're more likely to have black oil waste on the beaches you're not going to want to visit are you no, that's really true. And so I think those are those interesting points that you pulled up there, Hannah, because, you know, often in terms of travel and tourism, the phraseology around sustainability and environmental protection for the future often is around aviation. But that that kind of reminds us that, you know, our seas are, are polluted and, and, and being more polluted. It's not just about plastic waste. It's about oil waste. You know, there's so many different pollutants in the sea which are going to impact coastlines and impact the lives of people that live near them. Some of those cases are man-made because, you know, they're about oil ships that have run aground or they've dispersed their waste into the seas. But this last issue that we're going to come to, Hannah, this is where shipping is actually a part of the tourism industry itself. And the sustainability targets of cruising, they don't seem to add up, do they? Not really, no. I mean, I think our listeners have heard us talk about cruise ships before and our our scepticism around it. But yes, so last week we had this news from Singapore that Disney Cruise Line has partnered with the Singapore Tourism Board and Singapore will be its exclusive home port for at least five years from 2025. It's going to be the largest cruise ship that Singapore has ever welcomed. And actually, interestingly, it was part of the Gunting Hong Kong's Dream Cruises unfinished ship after that all went bankrupt during uh, the pandemic. One of the points, you know, in, in this press release, they did mention it's going to be one of the first cruises to be fueled by green methanol, one of the lowest emission fuels. But despite that, it, it sits very strangely with me, I think. This, on the one hand, Singapore publicly going out and talking about its green plan 2030, talking about how it wants to become a sustainable travel destination. And then on the other hand, you're talking about having one of the largest cruise ships it's ever had home porting there. What's your take on that, Gary? Well, you're right. And I mean, you mentioned the size of the ship and it's what, 6,000 passengers, 2,300 crew disgorging at any one time. Now, that's a pretty interesting and very difficult sell, I think, when you look around the world at some of the cruise ports, which are actually or have, even before the pandemic, rejecting the huge cruises. So you think of Dubrovnik or you think of Venice. You know, they've actually rejected, the people have rejected this and even the tourism industry has actually had to, to take account of the fact that these huge cruise liners, you know, it's not just about the sustainability at sea, it's about how you manage um, the passengers and the crew when they when they get off the ship. It's, it's, a, it's a very difficult circle to square, I think, and then it's going to be quite interesting to see how this one gets sold over the next few months. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, from a consumer point of view, yeah, perhaps they're excited. Wow, it's Disney, so exciting. But I would be very interested to read more into this green methanol and exactly what percentage of its fuel is being fueled by that. Um, if it's one of the lowest emission fuels, is it the lowest? Uh, are there other alternatives? Is this one that's going to be like phasing, like AirAsia's planning till 2050 with an increasing ratio of uh, biofuel? Yeah, the jury's out, but we'll find out in 2025, I guess. 
Yeah, you're right. It's, it's controlling the narrative, isn't it? As you said, you know, how green is that methanol and, and how much is actually used? You know, if, if it's a, a ship of that size, it's going to use a lot of fuel, especially at sea. So, yeah, let's see how that one gets spun. Mm, especially when you think about how they're, I mean, because you, you can argue, can't you, that a cruise ship is like a floating hotel. I mean, that's how they they definitely pitched it during the staycations. And then, of course, the Singapore hotels have all got to work towards this roadmap, right, around minimizing food wastes and maximizing energy efficiencies and all of this. You know, is this cruise ship also going to be subject to that? Watch this space. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, um, on that interesting note let's say um that brings the show to a close for the week we hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out you can drop us a message on our linkedin page at the southeast asia travel show yep as always you can catch up with the southeast asia travel show's full back catalog on our website the seasiatravelshow.com and you can find us on any international podcast platform so that's a wrap for today but we'll be back next week to talk more southeast asia travel and tourism with you soon